So this is a season that I call commercial season because everybody's creating, companies are creating their commercials for the Super Bowl. Not everybody wants to spend the money to, on the Super Bowl. So they, you know, during the football playoffs, you get to see a lot of new commercials and a lot of cool commercials. Um, so it's kind of entertaining. I'm also learning that I'm so uncool that I don't realize that some people don't ever watch live TV, so they are losing an understanding of what commercials are. So, but um, there are commercials that are out there. There's a commercial for a new kind of pet food called Fresh Pet. Don't know if you've seen these Fresh Pet commercials. There are several of them. They're all kind of the same vibe, the same mode. They have the same message, but they're kind of cute and they're perfect for what we're talking about, right? We're talking about survival of the friendliest. And in that book, they talk about how dogs are domesticated and how our domesticated dogs, they teach us um, just how smart they are, um, and that domestication is a sign of intelligence, um, and it's a, this friendliness component is really important to our survival. So all of that stuff we learn through the domestication of dogs. And so, and it makes sense because we, we really love our dogs, and this commercial is perfect on a lot of levels. So let's take a watch. I love your place. Thanks. Could you grab some carrots? Sure. What's this? That's for Pepper. You keep dog food in your fridge? It's not dog food, it's fresh pet. Real meat, real veggies. That you feed your dog, so it's dog food. You were so right about her. Fresh pet. It's not dog food, it's food food. Yeah, see, so that's super funny, right? In short 30 seconds, they take you down a great road of um, bringing you in and then, you know, yanking the rug out from under you. It shows us a lot of different things, like how, in, well, how ridiculously expensive dog food can be. It shows you that, um, which is a thing. But it also shows just how we elevate our pets, how important they are. You know, maybe it's just me, but if I had a cute girl in my apartment, which never really happened other than my wife, but if it never really happened, <laughs> but if I had a cute girl in my apartment and the dog looked at her sideways, I wasn't kicking her out, right? So it shows where we are with regard to our pets. We elevate them. The dog looks at somebody sideways and they're gone. Um, it's a tragic indictment of our society on one level because we do just toss people away, right? That's something that we do. And that's kind of uh, sad and scary to think about. In 2018, the census came out and one of the results of the 2018 census was that there was a shift that more people now live in urban settings than live in rural settings. Part of the controversy about that and part of what's been studied is that that was more of a self-reporting thing, but more people now live urban and suburban than rural. And again, this is a map of all of our urbanness <laughs> and all of the light we produce, right? So um, there's a change in the attitudes when you live urban versus rural. I don't know if you understand that, but that's what's being studied, the change in how we treat people based on where we live. Just quick sampling. Um, how many of you actually, like me, live in a small town or out in the country? How many of you live out in the country? 
Some of you. How many of you, because you know, Lincoln is really, when, when, when non-Nebraska people ask me the difference between Omaha and Lincoln, I say Lincoln, uh, Omaha's a city and Lincoln's just a big small, uh, just a, a big town, right? We're, we're a town, we're not a city, but we're considered a city. So how many of you either have roots in or grew up living in a small town or on a farm? Show of hands. Almost all of you, right? So we in this room get the difference. There's a difference between how you treat people when you're urban and how you treat people when you're rural. In rural places, we need to, let me go to the next slide. In rural places, we need to get along. We got nobody else, right? The neighbor that I'm not too thrilled about who lives just an eighth of a mile from me, I still stay in relationship with him because he might pull me out of the ditch someday. And that is true, right? You have to get along with people. In urban settings, like this next slide, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches how we toss people away because we just have that many more people we can go. We become like the fresh pet guy. I'm done with you. I've made my assessment. Boom, you're out, you're gone. So there is a difference in attitude between urban people and rural people, especially as how disposable people become. Again, like my children's message. I do believe that this impacts us. We are a single-use society. We use something once and we throw it away. And that's how that pervasive attitude, that, that's how we think about people. We dispose of them, we throw them away. You're dead to me, right? We just kill them off. Because we have this embarrassment of riches that we think that we'll just, oh, there's plenty of people that I can be friends with. I think of Pastor Sarah, who's right now in, in Tanzania, and I, I know one of the places that she's going to stop is going to be this large market. When you go from one place to another, there's this giant market, and if you walk through all the shops, if you get deep enough into this market, what you'll eventually find is a place way in the back where a guy and, honestly, poverty-stricken children are cutting up old semi-truck tires and turning them into sandals. They throw away nothing there. She'll be a part of auctions at the end of a worship service in Tanzania. Every congregation has an auction because they don't have a Walmart nearby, so they exchange goods, and then that money goes actually to the church. And there will be water bottles like this that are filled with goat's milk because somebody drank the water out of it, they kept the bottle, and then when they milk their goat, they put it in there, and then that gets auctioned off. They use these single-use bottles over and over and over again in Tanzania, nothing gets tossed, nothing gets thrown away. They stick with everything and waste very little. The text that we have today, again, that I asked you to earmark, I wanna encourage you to open the Pew Bible to 897 or to just bring it up on your device. Again, it's Matthew 18. We look, the challenge of this text is that we look at all of the individual pieces and we miss the overarching meaning. And all of these individual stories get studied in the micro, but we miss the macro message. And I want to make sure that we get this. You know, the thing about the way Jesus teaches in Matthew's gospel, it's kind of scattergun. It just, there are all these things. And we lose the connection. 
And so we're gonna bring that connection back to what we're studying and what we're learning today. So you can see the heading at the beginning of Matthew's 18th chapter, it's about true greatness, and they ask who's, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus brings a kid out and says one like this. Now I'm, I, you know, I'm the baby whisperer, I love that, kids, yay, they're the greatest, terrific, so awesome. Um, but then what's odd about that text is that there's all of these warnings and the text gets really negative really fast. Like if you lead one of my kids away, better to have a mill rock tied around your neck and jump into the sea, right? And then later we kind of skipped over it. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. But then the next parable is of the lost sheep. So Jesus says, you know, if a shepherd loses one sheep, he leaves the other 99 on the hill and then goes and finds it and then rejoices when found. Put all of these together and what you see is this commitment that Jesus is talking about with regard to God's love that nothing is thrown away, that everyone matters and that there's an effort-filled work of staying in relationship that Jesus never gives up, never tosses away, never says to the wild, well, I get 99 others, who cares about that sheep? Never does that, but every single one is important and it's effortful to keep. And then there's this weird text that we heard about with regard to uh, holding one another accountable and that starts on verse 15. And again, I want you to look at verse 15. If another member of the church, uh, the NRSV, which is our our tribe's Bible, the, National, the New Revised Standard Version, um, is what we normally use. This is one text that's particularly poorly translated. Because if you have the Pew Bible, it says you, if another member of the church, and then there's a little footnote, and it actually, the text originally was, if your brother, or they tried to expand the language to, to make it more inclusive, but in doing that, they hurt the meaning because instead of, your brother or sister or if another person, which is what they could have said, they said a member of the church, which takes us down a rabbit hole that we shouldn't go down. But if another person sins against you, and actually the text is interesting because it doesn't even say, the original text doesn't even say against you. So if another person sins, go and point out the fault when you're alone. Wonderful principle. Criticize in private, compliment in public. But if that doesn't work, then bring others and if that doesn't work, then even do more, bring it to the church, and then finally, if it's not received, then you have to hold that person at arm's length. It doesn't say dispose of them, but it's gonna hold that person at arm's length. Don't interact with them as much. There's no throwing away here. And what we didn't read and what's particularly important, if you flip over to 898, you can see Peter asks, how many times do I forgive? And that's where you get the famous line, 77 times. And then, even on top of that, Jesus says, this is what happens when you don't forgive. <laughs> so the whole point of all of this teaching is don't give up on people. Stay in relationship with them. Don't toss them aside. People are not disposable. Don't do that. And that is absolutely contrary to what we believe in our society. That's absolutely contrary to where we're going societally. 
We just completed this week in our council and staff retreat. And I'll say to you what I've said before. You are very blessed and fortunate to have the elected leaders that you have here. The folks who sacrifice of their time to lead this place, you are blessed by. And you are also blessed to have the staff that you have here at Sheridan. We have an amazing team with a lot of longevity and we are blessed to have the professionals who come here and spend you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week here in the name of ministry of the church. With that said, I reviewed with them what is a hallmark of this community, and I'll remind you of it as well. Namely, that we're a diverse community. And I know, you're looking around going, what? Because <laughs> we're all white, pretty much. We're all middle, upper middle, upper class people. We're all from kind of Southeast Lincoln, if you will. So we don't look like we're diverse, but we are diverse in thought. We are diverse in idea and ideal and perspective. And I know that for sure, because I know most of you. <laughs> we have extremely conservative folks, we have extremely liberal folks. We have folks who feel passionately about certain things and others who feel passionately about others. And unlike most places in society where we surround ourselves only with like-minded people, here everybody puts that at the door and walks in and we're good to each other. That is who we are and who we have been. And that's who we will remain. You know, the easiest thing to do and what social media will teach us, what our news media outlets teach us on both sides of the equation is that if somebody doesn't like you or somebody doesn't believe what you believe, tear them down and toss them aside. And so we are becoming increasingly polarized. This has always been a problem, but it's certainly more acute now. And Sheridan, I believe, is the antidote. Sheridan, I believe, is a rare oasis societally. And I think it is a part of the solution to the problem. Matter of fact, Hare and Woods will tell you in their research that those who stay with one another and who communicate well and cooperate lovingly, who are not just having friendships with people who are like them, but who are friendly to the people who are not like them, that is the survival strategy for us all. The more polarized, the more divided, the more hateful we get with one another, the worse it will be. The easiest thing to do is to toss somebody aside. And it's a part of our human nature, but it's also a part of how society keeps pushing us. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1962 said that there is no more a segregated time in the United States than 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. This has always been a problem. But I'm telling you, I am proud of us for being part of the solution. Because we do not see our relationships as based on a common idea or a friendliness or a confirming of who we already are. We see our love, our community, our fellowship based on something greater than just simply a mindset or perspective. We see this fellowship, this community, this relationship as based on the love of God that comes to us and in us and through us. 
That's why we're here. There are lots of places on one side, there are lots of places on the other. There are very few in the middle and we are that. Where we love and accept others, not because it's easy, but because it's the love of God that we share. An unfailing love of God that never fails to come to us and we hope never fails to go through us. Years ago, I received a a book from a dear friend and it's so old it's faded now on the edge and it's you know got all these marks in it of wonderful quotes but it's a book on friendship and it's called the book is called treasure of a friend and uh, the book is written by John Maxwell who um, is a megachurch pastor who then became kind of a leadership guide and expert and um, consultant and um, and he had a heart attack early in life and it woke him up to what's most important. So he, with his good friend Dan Ryland, wrote this book on friendship and it's just chock full of all these kinds of stories and mostly quotes from different people about friendship. But the one that has always meant the most to me is um, one quote and it's written by Dan Ryland, uh, the co-author of this book. And I want you to receive this because it's exactly germane to what we're talking about today. It'll be on the screens but I encourage you to maybe just close your eyes and receive this as a word of prayer. It's called Love and Friendship. Love is still the greatest cure the world has ever known, no matter what the problem. The love of a friend makes you feel totally accepted just the way you are. The love of a friend asks how you are and really listens for an answer. The love of a friend touches you. Even though she knows all about you, she loves you anyway. The love of a friend stays with you when others desert you. The love of a friend is a gift from God. With all due respect to Dan, I would agree with every single word of that, save one small edit. The love of a friend is not just a gift from a God. The love of a friend is sourced by God. Don't throw people away. Don't just have friendships, but be friendly with those who are different than you and be part of our societal solution as we share the love of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer.